Those of you that are on our mailing list received a letter this week that I am foregoing the third message in the series on gay marriage. Some have asked, well, were you getting criticism? Not one comment. It's not because there was something I feared or I was trying to avoid, you know, that. Wasn't it at all. Just didn't have a sense of peace to continuing to beat a dead horse. You got the message. You understand it. Let's move on. Colossians 2 Verses 16 through 23 is what's going to be our focus today. Uh, We're starting this new series called The Dangers of Legalism. If there was ever a message that applied to the evangelical church, it would be something like this. Now, listen, I'm not preaching this message to point a finger because uh, I was one. I understand this uh, from whence we come. I've told this story before, but when I was a youth pastor... 22 years old, Janet and I just got married. The church that I was a youth pastor at, you couldn't go to movies. There's a lot of you know, rules like that if you grew up in a, one of these conservative churches. I took kids on a mission trip, dropped Janet off in Nashville, and came back and picked her up afterwards. She was staying with her sister. Found out that she went to a movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, how decadent can your wife be, right? And I just came unglued. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that she did such a thing. And uh, it was, uh, as I look back on it now, I mean, I was just a real toad. The fact is, is that it's really difficult to notice legalism in our hearts. And when's the last time you heard somebody confess, you know, I was a legalist? You don't hear it often. It, it, it's so insidious. It's so hard to, to see in your own life and, and, and to admit. But this is what Paul is attacking He's unmasking, really, an ugly arrogance and of religion that has gone amok, particularly with a certain segment of those that were uh, around the church. We really don't know how involved these people were in the church, but obviously it was known within the church. Uh, Now, for Paul, the true mark of an authentic religion is not a rigorous compliance to rules of self-denial, but dependence upon Christ that produces an authentic holiness and community. And I I want you to hear what I'm saying here. An authentic holiness and community. It's a a work that starts on the inside and, and then it produces righteousness on the outside. But it starts in the heart. Now, the false teachers at Colossae were really a hodgepodge of a kind of... uh, Greek dualism separating the material world from the spiritual world, all the material world is bad, and a a mysticism of having special spiritual experiences, and then Judaism. All that was kind of mixed in within this. And this created a kind of elitism. Now, this elitism for the church today can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, And so even though we may not be dealing with the very specific issues that uh, the uh, people in Colossae were dealing with, we still deal with pride and arrogance. We still deal deal with other forms of legalism. Some segments of Christianity, for instance, practice a kind of asceticism. They see the culture as evil, and so it's it's the goal of the church to completely separate from the culture. All right? Not to engage the culture, but to completely separate from the culture. The culture is 
the enemy. And there are Christians who not only see the culture as the enemy, but also the organized church. You meet those people. So they want to do their own things. You know, they go completely what they think is organic. They, they stay away from anything traditional, anything that is associated with uh, any kind of organization. So, you know, don't have any pastors, don't have any elders. How, whatever form that takes, that is where spirituality is found. Uh, others get off on different theological tangents. It could be you know, non-charismatic, charismatic, Pentecostal, not Pentecostal, Reformed, Arminian, all these kinds of things. And then they want to make sure they cleanse the church from anybody you know, who doesn't hold to those particular positions. We make those things the gauge by which we judge other people. We make those things the barometer on whether we can enjoy fellowship together. And unity is based on those things. That's the problem. Then you have others who are kind of the self-described progressives within Christianity. So what, you know, what they do, they consider themselves the more tolerant, more loving, and certainly more intellectual aspects of, of, of Christianity. And, but in order to get there, they deny the authority of Scripture, and they embrace the culture. You have those people. And then you have all the lifestyle issues, you know, kind of like what I mentioned earlier, uh, only this could include, like, do you drink? Or, you know, your dress, how you school your kids, whether or not you read Harry Potter or Star Wars or Twilight books or drink beer or, or, or smoke. And you should only do one of those things, by the way. You can't do Harry Potter and drink at the same time. That's really bad, okay? The point is, is that all of these are ways in which we evaluate the spiritual life of others. I read uh, this week from one... Christian leader. They, they, they decried the dress and makeup of women in today's culture. This is, okay, this is current, all right? This is what the person said. Uh, why do women and girls wear makeup? Why is it expected that females will wear makeup? Face and eye painting has its origins in prostitution. Uh, it is used by females today for the same reason, uh, reason that it was and is used by prostitutes. Just one look at makeup advertisements confirms this. It is to make the person more attractive. Now, those who oblige, those who oblige the author, you know, you're in a safe zone, you're in the elite. Those who don't, the the women who don't oblige with their clothing or their jewelry, he has affectionate terms for you like whore. Apparently, subtlety is not a godly quality. Now, we have to make the point that the issue is not whether or not we're free to have convictions about any of these things, all right? That's not the point. All of us, for various reasons, may have firm convictions about any of these things I just mentioned, and we're free to do that. Uh, For instance, uh, let's say, let's just deal, I don't want to harp on this, but let's just say uh, having a beer, all right? And maybe you were an, an alcoholic, and that was your past, and you just can't have anything to do with it. There's nothing wrong with having a conviction that says, you know what, I should not have a beer. I just can't go there. And you, you could apply that to a lot of these different areas. The point where it becomes legalism is where you say, nobody should have a beer. 
that, that to, 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 to have a beer, you can't be close with God. That is where the legalism comes in. You dictate and you, you, you condemn others for doing it. That's where it crosses the line. Does this become a standard for everyone else? Is this the way that we find acceptance within the body of Christ? Is this the way we rank the spiritual life of others? So whether it's doctrinal, a lifestyle choice or behavior, or even some special spiritual experience at which we rate people, these are all used to create a kind of elitism within the body. And with that comes a lot of pride, a lot of arrogance, and listen, this applies to all of us because in our spiritual journey, pride and arrogance is something that every one of us are going to have to battle with, right? I mean, till, let's just admit it, until we leave this earth. And it, it, it comes in such insidious ways. I struggle with it as well, just like you do. And I probably struggle with it more just because of being in this position because it can, it can go to your head. So the Lord, you know, has to really beat down on me to remind me, you know, you're not as cool as you think you are. And so... These are the kinds of things that I think that we need to just remind ourselves that this is not the other guys, all right? This is about us. So let's stand. Let's look at this passage. We'll read it, and then we'll dive in. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, Lord, I pray that you would keep us from trafficking in legalism that we might be a church body that pursues holiness from the inside out. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Well, what in the world does that mean? Because I can't control what other people think of me. So how do you practice this? Obviously, I don't think he's talking about trying to control what other people think. But we cannot be controlled by what other people think, all right? Paul is saying, don't allow these kinds of thoughts, these kind of people, to influence you in the church. No matter what kind of friendship you have with them, no matter how nice they may be, all right, do not allow this kind of thinking to get a hold in the church. It's a warning to all of us not to tolerate the ongoing propagation of legalism. Now, what is it? Well, he really uses this passage to kind of describe various aspects of it. Uh, One aspect is requiring adherence to an Old Testament law that no longer applies to believers today. Now, one law that the Colossians apparently struggled with, and again, we're not given insight as to how many people or anything like that. We just know that some of them thought this way. 
And that was following a new, uh, new moon or Sabbath. Now, the sighting of the new moon uh, each month was similar to the Sabbath in that people would, would suspend working. They would uh, have special sacrifices and, and, and festive meals. And this was in recognition of, of giving God thanks for his work in Israel and separating Israel from other Gentile nations. It was spoken about 17 times, the new moon, in the Old Testament. And there are a couple examples that I threw up on the screen for you in Amos and in First Chronicles. So Paul explicitly says not to subject ourselves to others who insist on following Old Testament ceremonial laws. Now, some of these laws talked about abstaining from food or drinks. So trying to draw one back into the Old Testament law is a form of legalism. Another form is adding to Scripture what's not there and making that a standard for everybody else to follow. Uh, For instance, and this is rather benign, but I think it makes the point, let's say that you have a strong conviction about eating sugar, that in your diet you're cutting out all sugar. Uh, You feel like in order to be a good steward of your body, you want to cut out sugar. I don't get that, but if you want that conviction, all right, go for it, all right? Now, Nothing wrong with having that conviction, right? Nothing wrong with that at all. But when you begin to condemn others, when you begin to grade their walk with God, their spiritual life, on whether they eat sugar or not, that's where you have crossed the line into legalism. And you are condemning other people who do eat sugar. So it's foisting on top of Scripture you know, a, a extra commandment and drawing a spiritual conclusion about that. Now, let me just stop right here and say, that doesn't mean that there aren't scriptural principles that have obvious applications. For instance, you know, somebody might say, well, the scripture doesn't say I can't read Playboy. Well, listen, don't be so stupid, all right? Because the, 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 the Bible clearly talks about pornography, all right, and involving ourselves in those kinds of things. So that's an obvious application, all right, of not involving yourselves in, in pornography. So when there's obvious applications like that, that's different than adding some kind of application to a law that's not even there, all right? Now, Paul addressed another type of um, uh, asceticism, or I shouldn't say another type of asceticism, but the nature of asceticism in 1 Timothy when he said this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Check this out. This is how it's noticed. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, I'm not implying that everybody who is legalistic is demon-possessed. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying this, this legalism, the teaching itself, has its roots in demonic activity. Whoa, really? Because demons love to be able to fool us and to prop up some faux spirituality, like legalism, instead of operating in the real thing dependent on Christ. Legalism centers on what man can do as opposed to what God has already done in the person of Christ. 
It defies grace, it elevates man. And that's the attraction. It's a heady thing to impress people with our spirituality, with our, you know, quote, holiness. These external observances, they are glorifying to man. And Paul is warning that letting anyone condemn us in matters of food and special days on a religious calendar or extra biblical external observances, he says, stop letting them do this to you. You are allowing yourself to be subject to that kind of thing. Stop it. Do not let them do that. Now, how's that done today? Uh, Did you light your candles? Did you participate in mass? Did you fast? Do you homeschool? Hey, you've got to read this discipleship book. Did you go through that class? You have got to go through these steps or this program. Are you using the King James Version? Uh, You need to be at church on Wednesday nights and Sunday evenings. I can't possibly list all of the ways that the joy stealers and bondage makers try to condemn others. But they are not to be entertained. They are not to be tolerated within the church. Why? These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ Why would I seek, in the case of the Colossians, where they followed an Old Testament law, why would I seek to follow an Old Testament law that was made to foreshadow Christ and I have a current relationship with Christ? It's like, because I know nobody does this, texting someone who's sitting right in front of you. (laughs) Why would you do that when you could have the relationship with them sitting, they're right there. Why are you texting? All right? So why are, you, why are you settling for an inferior way to relate when you have the person in front of you? The reality of God is found in Christ. Why would I settle for something that merely points to Christ? It makes no sense. For what God has done, what the law for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. This is Romans 8, 3 and 4. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what the Old Testament foreshadowed, Christ has fulfilled. I plead with you, my dear brothers and sisters, not to settle for anything less. Why do we want to wrangle about issues related to religious life and matters of doctrine and practice while we miss the big picture, the purpose of it all, in a relationship with Christ? What I'm saying is I think we're all subject to it. We can all fall in it. We have to keep our eyes on what is it that's promoting the relationship with Christ, I mean, it's, it, it'd be like this. Let's say that, uh, you know, you have your significant other that, that you uh, haven't seen them in a while. And you, you sit down together, and you immediately, when you first see them, you start nitpicking about, man, I don't like your hair. Or, what's the deal with the shoes? 
I mean, what is that? Aren't you glad that you are there with your loved one? Aren't you enjoying the fellowship? Aren't you enjoying the rich communion that you can have together? No, you know, I just don't get the hair. I don't understand that. You'd look a lot better if you had in the shoe. I mean, what is that? Isn't that a little nitpicky? Isn't that, isn't that missing the point? And yet this is exactly what Christians do in church when we argue about these secondary issues. And we cannot allow, all right, our service to God, our worship of God, our relationship with God to be hampered by lesser things and miss the forest because of a twig. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were there through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The idea is that Christ is our source. Christ is the process. Christ is the goal. Christ is our all in all in our Christian life. He's the one that we daily depend on. I cannot ramp up my spirituality by making sure I follow all of these external things and then I can be accepted by God. I'm already accepted by God in Christ. And so I live out this life in freedom knowing that my fellowship with him is secured in Christ. So ask yourself this. Ask yourself, is is Christ or my behavior the focus of me holding up this issue or agenda? I mean, this gets so convoluted. You know, you get on some doctrinal thing, you know, eschatology or some way, and you you think, man, you know, more people need to know this. You start harping it and harping it, and pretty soon you know that You're just over here off in the corner trying to get everybody to your little party, and this has nothing to do with the mission of the church or with our relationship with Christ. So he says in verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Well, what does it mean not to let anybody disqualify us? And this is where he kind of lowers the boom, that there are consequences to the legalism. Now, the word actually means to break a rule in a race, so much so that we're counted out in the race, all right? If we allow legalism to take root, in other words, we fail to rely upon Christ and instead rely upon our flesh, we are counted out of something. If we live the Christian life according to the flesh, okay, we are missing out on something. What are we missing out on? Well, I can, it's obvious, it would seem, that we miss out on joy. We miss out on freedom, right? We miss out on a, a godly confidence in living out our life in Christ. And here's something else we miss out on. We miss out on rewards in living a life of faith. 
Let's just first take the missing out on some of the things that we can enjoy now. Colossians, or excuse me, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25, has that long list of living according to the flesh or living according to the spirit. Uh, we could say uh, synonymous with living according to the spirit is just living dependent upon Christ. But included in those characteristics are things like love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness. Could we not conclude then? That if I live the Christian life according to the flesh, and by the way, some people have type A flesh. It looks really good, and it's really impressive. But anything according to the flesh that comes from arrogance and pride, it never produces righteousness. Never can, never will. You do that to impress, it doesn't matter what the result is. And here's what I truly believe about this. Even if I were to get up here and preach a sermon, and even if somebody were to come to Christ, and I do it with such arrogance, you may not know it, but I will not be rewarded for that. That will not be righteousness on my account, even though God can use my crummy sermon to do something in the life of other people. That just shows how great God is, but it's not going to be counted to righteousness for me. You see how that works? And so anything done in the flesh no matter how impressive it is, can never be counted as righteousness. And not only that, we miss out on genuine joy and peace. The best we can do is have faux joy, fake joy. And we miss out on rewards. For no one, this is out of 1 Corinthians 3, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. All right? So that's the good stuff. The foundation in and through Christ, dependent upon Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. What day is that? That's the judgment day where we stand before Christ, all right? Because it will be revealed by fire. Is that hell? No, that's just Christ judging his eyes of fire. It will penetrate all of these and determine whether this was good or bad, wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, for Christ or in the flesh. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This has nothing to do with salvation. This is a passage for Christians regarding rewards. Some will be burned up because it was arrogant, it was prideful, it was in the flesh, it was for themselves. Others Rewards will last because it was done in dependence upon Christ in genuine humility. Now, many po- folks point to Christianity and, and they say, well, look at all those hypocrites. Look at these you know, Christian leaders who are doing this for money, doing this just for their own glory. And listen, a lot of that is true. Can't deny that. But do you really think that God is going to let that go? Do you really think that God is not going to deal with that? Of course he is, right? God will adequately address those issues come reward time. But I want you to notice specifically what Paul says gets people disqualified here in verse 18. What disqualifies us is if we listen to the legalists. Those who insist on following Old Testament rituals, dietary laws, holy days, seeking visions or experiences, empty philosophies, and condemning others who don't follow those things, they're the ones that are disqualified if we listen to that. Now, the word for asceticism that's used here, 
It's actually translated in other versions as self-abasement or false humility. It means limiting our pleasure or relationships for the sake, and I'm choosing my words carefully here, for appearing holy. Limiting pleasure to appear holy. That's a lot different than genuine holiness. Now, certainly we understand that God is not some cosmic killjoy trying to drain every inch of pleasure out of the earth for human beings, all right? I believe that's quite the contrary. God wants us to live a full and abundant life. Now, when pleasure becomes our only goal, then it can become, become our master. But we live in this material world. I believe that God wants us to enjoy the material world, including food, drink, and sex within the parameters that God has given us, right? And, and every one of those have parameters, right? However, if we see the material world as evil, as these false teachers did in Colossians, then we would reject as much as possible any association with those things because that's a part of the material world. And then the idea was when you do that, you get closer to God. And Paul rejects that entire line of thinking. Now, along with the asceticism is the idea of worshiping angels or having some special supernatural experience. Now, today, that could come in a lot of forms, like, for instance, maybe speaking in tongues that everybody has to do. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not dogging that, but saying that people have not arrived in their spiritual life until they've done that, that is completely contrary to Scripture. These legalists love to brag about their experience by sharing those details with others so that you'll be wowed by the vision. You will be wowed by the elite status that I have achieved in my spiritual life. And people will prattle on about their experiences, and they completely miss the point. They are unreasonable, Paul says. And that's because whatever is done through the flesh is not going to produce righteousness. It's only what's done in dependent faith in Christ that produces genuine righteousness. So in God's terms, what's done in the flesh, it's a complete zero, no matter how impressive it may be to other people. I mean, legalists love to set up a false dichotomy between legalism and lawlessness, as if those are the only two choices that you have. And again, I'm keenly familiar with this. And people will say something like this. Well, you know, I just have a strong sense of what is sacred, and I don't want to sin. And that's why I traffic more in legalism, as if they are the vanguards of holiness. Now, if the legalists were on a continuum, it would not be holiness at the other end. The opposite of legalism is humility and vulnerability. The legalist is not even on a continuum for holiness because nothing from a heart of pride or arrogance can turn out to be righteous. Consider then what he said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul says people are operating out of the teaching of demons with this stuff. These are folks motivated by a sensuous mind. Why does he say that? A sensuous mind. It means these people are titillated by the senses. 
And that's the hypocrisy of it all. They are, you know, on one hand, eschewing the material world, and on the other hand, they're so titillated by or excited by the senses. You know, it could be very entertaining, but it lacks substance. It could be very showy, but it is completely empty. And perhaps the most devastating aspect of this is that these people are claiming spiritual superiority because of their supposedly higher spiritual insights. And this has led to a haughty disposition and great pride. And every one of us, every one of us can be guilty of this, no matter what spiritual family you are a part of. I mean, such people can't wait to tell you how humble they are, okay? And how, how spiritual they are. And they, you know, can present it in such self-deprecating ways. But whatever form this elitism takes, it's still arrogant, fleshly, and has nothing to do with the work of God. Those who are truly humble, they don't have to toot their own horn, right? They don't have to make sure others know about their spiritual accomplishments. They don't have to make sure everybody knows how smart or intellectual their arguments are. Here's another way of noticing that something is not of God. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. When our experience is not completely entrenched in Christ, it is of the flesh. And Paul says, nourished, knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. We see Christ as the entire ball of wax. He's the beginning, he's the end, he's the whole process. I have to have him involved in every aspect of my Christian life, not getting off on a tangent, keeping the whole body in mind, knit together through its joints and ligaments. We are connected. The whole body is nourished through Christ. You know what this says to me? I don't have to get so worked up worked up if I don't have control of everything. I mean, it'd be a lot easier if, you know, as a pastor, as elders, we wrote out all the lists that all of you are to follow in these, you know, cultural issues. But at some point, you have to realize you have the Word of God, too. You know, I'm not speaking ex cathedra up here. Uh, and, you know, some, every word I say when I'm sitting here up on this pulpit, you have to follow, right? If it aligns with the Word of God, that's good. When it doesn't, you throw that out. You, you know how to do that, right? I don't have to list every rule. Don't drink or, you know, just have one beer or, you know, don't go to movies or, you know, don't hang with these people or whatever those things are. We don't have to do that because you have the Spirit of God. You can read the Word of God and you can apply it. And here's the joy. The body is knit together. We don't have to agree on all that stuff. We don't have to. It's okay that some of you are beer drinkers and others aren't. It's okay that some go to movies and some don't. It's okay that some of you speak in tongues and some don't. It's okay. It's okay that some of you believe you ought to use the King James Version. Just don't thrust that in everybody else's face and say that's what everybody else has to do. That's when it becomes legalism. Go ahead and have your convictions. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But we cannot expect these subcultural codes to be manifested for the whole body and that be the way in which we recognize, oh, this person really goes with God. Christ is the one who causes the growth. It's like when I walk out with the remote controller in my pocket, when I walk out of the TV room, Janet will use that double entendre and goes, there goes the controller. And you know what? We become the controller when we expect everyone to live within our subcultural rules. We're trying to control. That's prideful. That is arrogant. I can have fellowship with people and enjoy rich fellowship, by the way, different political ideology. Oh, I know this is really pushing buttons on some of you. But listen, if Christ is for real, doesn't it, doesn't it mean that Jesus is bigger than all these things? That our unity is based on fellowship? I don't really care whether you read Harry Potter. I don't really care if you read The Twilight. I mean, I think it's stupid, you know, but that doesn't mean... That, that doesn't mean it's wrong for you to read it, right? Okay? This is one of those movies I may have liked in there, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> Healthy spiritual liberty will always promote growth in Christ. It always sees Christ as the main thing. When I am operating... In Christ, you know what? I'm a team player. I'm looking for the good of the body. I'm not interested in just my agenda being promoted. It comes alongside others and say, hey, how about you coming in line with my little nitpicking thing? No. What it says, it comes alongside and says, how can I help you achieve what God wants to do in your life? How can I assist you? All right? Pride and arrogance, you know what it does? It's quick to point out the fault. It's quick to show how, you know, I'm different than you. But in the end, legalism has nothing to do with holiness, nothing to do with unity, nothing to do with love. It's all about us versus them. And listen, to pull out of legalism, it's not easy. And like I mentioned before, you don't always notice somebody who confesses legalism. It's not easy, but I'll tell you what people have to start doing. We have to start being vulnerable, being honest about our own proclivities, confessing our sins to one another, people that we can trust. It's vulnerable. This is going to be uncomfortable at first. You know why? Because legalism is rewarded in a lot of faith communities. It's, it's, it's promoted. It, it, people are propped up when they're good legalists. So to confess it, that's not even welcome in a lot of places, right? So it's going to be uncomfortable. But listen, once you have tasted the sweet waters of genuine fellowship that can be enjoyed without worrying about what others think of you, Once you have tasted those waters, you never want to return again to the dirty cesspool of legalism. Let's pray.